This, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. Listeners, this is Amy Polly, and welcome to the 61st episode of the Practice of Learning Teams podcast show. Learning Teams embraces and respects the need for functional diversity and diversity of thought to be present and an integral part of organizational and worker learning. This approach acknowledges and makes visible the differences that exist between genders in the workforce in order to identify health and safety risks and implement, maintain, and improve effective solutions. Today, is part six of our special podcast series on women's perspective, adoption and approach on the new view of safety and learning teams. Where the host Glynis McCarthy has conversations with women who represent organizational leadership, industry advocacy, safety practitioners, and regulatory authority. We will explore that individual's own journey the role of gender in safety and the potential of the new view of safety and learning teams. On today's show, we welcome Tanya Hewitt, who has a background in regulatory authority in the nuclear industry and currently a health and safety practitioner in the new view of safety. Tanya describes herself as a lifelong learner. She is passionate about safety science and human and organizational performance. She decided to begin Beyond Safety Compliance when the podcasts she listens to and the people she knows in the field were beginning to reveal that the concepts, ideas and practices of the evolving field of safety differently and organizational health were taking shape and making a real difference in the organizations that were employing them, from the ground level to the C-suite. Please join Glynis and her special guest Tanya, as we learn and improve together. Hi, Tanya. Thank you so much for your time today. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to work in the safety sector. Well, thank you so much, Glynis. This is a a, a fantastic opportunity. Thank you so much for um, contacting me to be able to talk a little bit about this stuff. Okay, so um, a bit about my background. Um, So I started with a bachelor's and master's in physics. And um, I, I distinctly remember one of the advisors, I suppose, I had while doing my master's. I was given the opportunity to do a doctorate in physics as well. And um, one of the advisors had heard that I had turned down that opportunity. And he asked me, like, why would you do something like that? And I had told him, I've realized that I don't love physics enough to get a PhD. So, I mean, it's okay, but I don't, I don't actually have that great joy of the subject matter in order to be able to really dig into it in a doctorate. And he looked at me and said, wow, I don't think I've heard anybody talk like that. (laughs) Most people I know, including myself, um, you know, there's an opportunity, they just take it. And, uh, you know, my grandfather was a physician. I, my father was a physician. I'm a physician. And, you know, I didn't really think too much about it. And 
um, that's that's kind of something that uh, stuck with me that there are some people who don't necessarily contemplate a whole lot about their career or or the direction they're going. Um, uh, unlike, I guess, I had chosen to do fairly early on. Um, I also um, uh, worked at the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, the you know federal nuclear regulator, for uh, some time. Um, I I left there. I left after doing a uh, ten years in. Um, what is called the class two area, where I was doing a lot of license assessments and inspecting. And it was during that time that I was exposed to some of what we now call safety differently or new view thinking. And I started to realize that I was in a very highly paid job making things worse and i didn't like that feeling <laughs> so i decided okay um, that's certainly I, an epiphany that's for sure yes yeah, so i i thought okay i can't i can't do this anymore and uh so then um but because of some of the readings i was doing i did believe that i had a subject matter that i could actually fall in love with and get it more in depth with and uh, that's when I chose to pursue a PhD. Mm -hmm. um, and I looked at uh, incident reporting systems as uh, my, my uh, doctoral thesis. And, um, and then uh, realizing that perhaps um, some of the reading that I was doing was a little bit too avant-garde for a lot of the um, patient safety movement at the time that it that I was doing this stuff uh, I uh, decided to go back to the nuclear regulator but more in the human and organizational performance area and um, and that uh, is basically where I had uh, ended up I fantastic people with from all sorts of backgrounds strong human factors flavor to uh, the work that was being done there um, I in that capacity I was um, one of the key people in being able to get a so I mean this this may may rub your audience the wrong way it depends because <laughs> I know that there's a lot of people who wouldn't like hearing something like this a regulatory document on safety culture and um, it is very much based on the um, IAEA's the International Atomic Energy Agency's safety report series number 83 and if you can get over the title you know <laughs> um, which is um, self-reporting nuclear power plant self-reporting um, I can't remember the title, but it's on safety culture, self self assessments of safety culture. Um, the the content of that particular multi author document is fantastic, and um, that's very much what we tried to be able to model our much thinner regulatory document upon. Mm -hmm. So that was 
And was that something that I that kind of seeded the the new direction for you then? You know, that really, um, I suppose, thinking beyond compliance, which is kind of where you've ended up, isn't it, as as the founder and CEO of your organisation beyond safety compliance? Yeah, um, maybe you can. Is it was that the, the I suppose the starting point for looking at how do you go beyond compliance and really start to put a mirror up to organisations to for to help them then in that journey to sort of see where they're at. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, the the nuclear industry has a very strong philosophy of adherence to rules. There is, um, and I mean, you know, some of this is for good reasons. So, I mean, there are certain rules that, you know, you really do have to adhere to, but the, the nuance of the work as is as it's done versus as as prescribed or as imagined isn't necessarily um, what I saw in my experience. And this safety culture approach that we were um, encouraging people to do, um, it was it was very difficult for a lot of people that I encountered to envision, um, you know, a lot of this stuff not being tick boxy. And I said, well, how do you know? And I said, well, you know, you're going to have to talk with people. You're going to have to have, you know, um, a, a broader view of what's going on. You can't just, you know, a, a one and done kind of approach. And I, you know, the, uh, and I, I kept talking about indicators being indicators, not being the whole picture. There's just an indicator. You need to be able to have, um, again, a much wider view in order to be able to have anything close to a conclusion, if you can ever call it that. And that approach wasn't in line with a whole lot of traditional nuclear safety um, approaches because, uh, again, I mean, it, being very engineering driven, I, I think there is just this understanding that, you know, there is a line item and are you compliant or not? And so it's very binary, isn't it? Yeah, and, that, that old view. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I thought, okay, there is, even if you are compliant, you can get yourself into trouble. So I, I chose to name my company Beyond Safety Compliance with the emphasis on the beyond so that people would begin to maybe get the the messaging that compliance is not enough and you know com there's you know compliance is okay so as is not so as long as we don't get into a malicious compliance kind of environment but um just because you're compliant doesn't mean that you're done doesn't mean that you're good or safe or ethical or anything it just means that you're compliant and in order to get to any of those things you have to shoot higher than what the laws and regulations say. Absolutely. Um, one of the things I really resonate that I saw on, on your website um, was, was the line, embrace the red, challenge the green. And for me, that just speaks volume. I think that we often feel, oh, if we're in the in the green, yay, we've we've nailed it. We're good. We don't have to go any further. And I, so I really love that statement: embrace the red and challenge the green. Tell me a little bit more about it, and how does that inform your practice? So I, 
I love that scene. And I took that from um, Todd Conklin's episode number 200. Um, I remember, um, you know, uh, listening to podcasts as I was commuting to work and, and hearing this. So this was uh, Todd Conklin interviewing uh, an executive, uh, HSE executive in Qatar. Qatar? And I'm like, okay, there's almost no relationship I can have with Qatar, the way they treat women and all those sorts of things. You know, I, I don't think that's a place I would feel comfortable moving to or anything. And yet this guy seemed to this, you know, um, native Qatarian who was talking to uh, Todd Conklin on this uh, episode 200, basically had what in North America we would have it as ISO banners across buildings saying that they're compliant with some kind of standard uh, at his plant. Embrace the red and challenge the green. I, I just love that idea. I mean, he he was talking about, you know, it's so much better to be given bad news early because if that's that's when you have a chance to intervene and do something about it and you know having people play the um the yes man game like oh god no don't tell the don't tell the boss bad news like he doesn't want to hear it um is would mean that your dashboard is green and he said if he saw a green dashboard his assumption was not that we're doing well his assumption was somebody's hiding something from me because organizational dysfunction is not something to be ashamed of. It is almost everywhere. And it's better to at least acknowledge that you have it and start working to improve it than denying that it exists at all. And um, so I love that saying. I actually just, uh, if I could just add one more thing. Um, I was listening to a Choiceology uh, podcast episode recently where they were talking about uh, you know having a positive mindset and how um there's a there's a whole school out there of you know just think positive and everything is going to be wonderful and envisioning and all this kind of thing there's a place for that but um there's also a place for uh, preparing for the worst as well <clears throat> and you can't prepare for the worst unless you acknowledge that it could happen. And so, um, you know, and they talk about their stories of where, you know, people in the safety industry, I think are more concerned with things going wrong than, you know, uh, positive visioning, I would suspect. But the the fact that this, this podcast had um, shown how the thinking tends to be shown in polar opposites you know, either you're an optimist or a pessimist, and that actually being able to sit in the middle, you know, and and ha draw the best from both worlds is a much better place to be than at the extremes. I couldn't agree with you more. I've come from an adult education background before I moved into health and safety. And in part, it was because when I worked in adult education, and particularly in adult literacy, the people that I often worked alongside had English as a second or third or fourth language, often had literacy barriers that meant that to engage with the written world was really challenging for them. 
And what I often found there was that the skill set that you really had to develop with adults is critical appraisal. Because again, so much of life and particularly health and safety is presented in quite a binary way. You know, it's either yes or it's no, it's a rule. So either you comply or you don't comply. But actually what we need of our workforce and what we need of our organization, what we need of our management is for people to critically appraise. And that's really what, for me, that embrace the red and challenge the green really means. It means that we think about, is this presenting our reality? Or is this presenting the picture that we want it to look like? Um, and whether we be a worker and we're wanting to, you know, appease a, 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 a boss, whether it be a manager wanting to appease senior management. Um, and so for me, it is about how do we get people to think and appraise their situation critically, which is so important when you look at workers who are at the pointy end of the stick. When I, when I look at um, your, your background, when I look at um, the materials that you put forward and your website, what I see is such an important tenant of your practice is around learning. So you and yourself have done a great deal of learning. And it was so, uh, it's so great to hear that, you know, part of, of your own journey has been reflective and looking to say, is this something that really, is this the right path for me and where do I need to be going? So I see that learning and learning um, organization is a cornerstone of your practice. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? So what does this mean when you work with organizations? So the, <clears throat> a lot of, again, there's a whole lot of understanding of say, say university education, that when you get your de degree or diploma that you, you're done, you know, you throw your graduation hat up in the air and you're done. And that, that whole mantra, that whole understanding of education, I think is to our detriment. I mean, it's fine to celebrate successes and that's okay. But if people don't recognize that learning is a life journey, it's an organizational lifeblood, you know, core principle, according to the five principles of human orga organizational performance, the you know, you have to be able to recognize that learning is almost, you, you know, almost try to get learning in, in concert with breathing. Like it, it is so core to how we, we should be conducting both our personal lives and our organizational lives. So that means if you have, um, you know, uh, occasions to learn from your own organization, and take advantage of these, you know, always take advantage of opportunities of, of people coming to you, of people saying things. Like, it, it's not as though um, uh, there, there are a lot of, you would think, uh, organizations believe that they've hired a lot of mobsters almost, you know, the way that they talk about how people are, oh, just wanting to pull one over on me and wanting to, you know, I don't necessarily believe that's true unless you've fostered a culture that encourages that, like that, that is a possibility. But I don't think people are naturally ordained to, to want to um, screw up at work, right? Like this is the, the, uh, um, oh my goodness, I've forgotten the term, but the, the the complement to the fundamental attribution error, the um, uh, bounded rationality kind of understanding, the... Um, 
Uh, I, I often just can't think of Sydney Decker's term. <laughs> I, I don't. I won't use Sydney Decker's term, but I often think of it as a deficit model. So I often, what I often hear is that you know workers can be bad eggs. Um, yes. And to be honest, what we need to think about is how we're hiring people. If we are hiring a bunch of people that turn out to be bad eggs, then actually our focus should be really on our recruitment cycle. Um, I agree with you fundamentally. I've not worked with workers who set out to sabotage. What I find is that people go to do work and often the things that sit around them to support good practice don't actually aid good practice. It often it can create a barrier. So people find workarounds. Absolutely. And, you know, and workarounds are given such a, a derogatory interpretation. And yet a lot if, if workarounds actually have the work as done go above the black line then it's an innovation and, and we celebrate all of a sudden, it and we celebrate it and it's not a workaround anymore so we have to be careful with the language that we use when we label things yeah because uh they can certainly end up being uh very um derogatory even though we don't necessarily mean to imbue them with that sense so but so it's important for us to check you know, our language as we go forward. Speaking of that, the local rationality principle was the uh, concept that I was trying to think of before and it wasn't coming to me. Mm-hmm. But uh, but you said um, that we have to be very careful in how we hire. And I couldn't agree with you more. In an organizationally healthy company, hiring works much differently than it does in a traditional hiring sense. In a traditional company, you know, you would put out a job advertisement, you would probably look at resumes and screen them for um, keywords that talk about the knowledge and the skills and things that they have uh, acquired. And then you bring them in for, for an interview, this uh, uh, maybe with a panel of people and ask them a barrage of questions. And then you'd, you'd figure out who was the best candidate for, you know, whatever job you were thinking of putting them to. In, a, in an organizationally healthy company, it goes almost the other way. The, the company wants to find out who you are as a person. So they would like to talk to you more about, you know, your interests and what kind of, I mean, your skills and competencies, um, can even be acquired at the job. So, you know, those are not as important as who you are and the values that you bring to the workplace. And they actually, they do hiring while going shopping. You know, that's there because they want to see how people treat the cashier or, you know, the person who holds the door open for them or, uh, Charles Schwab actually, and this is a financial guy, he eons ago, he hired by getting to a restaurant earlier than the candidate and telling the person who was going to serve them, please do not give who's going the person who's going to be sitting with me the right order. Please screw up their order in some way uh, by design. And uh, from that, Charles Schwab would be able to assess, so does the person, so all he's interested in 
is how they react to that. That's that's the only thing he's really interested in. So if they react by flying off the handle, like how how stupid could you be? I said this and you brought this. Well, that communicates volumes. I don't care if you are the most incredible financial planner there is, you're not going to be working for me. On the other hand, if the person is totally meek and oh my god they brought the wrong order oh, i can't see anything this is terrible i mean and they just eat what they can't stand and all this kind of thing um that's another red flag for charles schwab because this person is never going to be able to tell me the truth this person is just going to you know hide behind some kind of shield that they are building for themselves and so you know uh these are types of behaviors that he looked for when he was hiring that never took place in a boardroom with you know people questioning that never took place by screening a resume like these are the types of healthy uh hiring practices you know going to if you find out in a in a healthy company the hiring um is is a two-way street So not only does the potential candidate invite the company uh, and and that has to be defined obviously over to their place you know their dwelling the and it, to share a meal together and they get to see the family dog and the kids and everything the whole family is invited to the office so that they could see where mummy might be working and all this kind of thing and they would like to be able to see some type of outside of work activity so if there if if a kid is on i don't know what sports are popular in new zealand is cricket popular i don't yeah cricket and rugby uh, you keep naming it we love okay. sports in new zealand <laughs> so um they would like to be able to see um you know the the candidate's son or daughter play in a rugby game in order to see how they are as people are they berating the coaches are they berating the referees are they you know telling their kid that they're not worth anything if they don't make a, a goal in the next 2 minutes so, like this is all information never you'll never know unless you look for it and uh because if they find out um that some of these behaviors are displayed in non-work environments a healthy company will tell them i'm really sorry but i don't think you'll be a good fit for our company because the then, fit is yeah. ultimately important but then that requires the company to have I, i suppose that critical gaze upon themselves so that they can they know themselves and can put that mirror up to themselves and actually cope with what comes back um that does require a great deal more maturity than i think sometimes companies feel comfortable with um you know because when you put that mirror up to yourself in good light you get to see you know the the perfections and the imperfections um one of the things that i really liked when i read um your linkedin just about you and and what's important to you was that you know you help organizations put a, a mirror up to themselves um that you make you know the company um more transparent 
with itself. And by doing that, it helps executives to become more aligned and workers to be happier. Can you kind of unpack that and tell us a little bit more about that? So the overall understanding of that is to try to make sure, again, it's, it's, it's very aligned with that embrace the red and challenge the green so that people can start to realize that um, our classic definition of good and bad might not be that helpful. It is more, um, it, is, it is to a company's advantage to be able to understand work as it's actually done because that is where the real learning to get back to learning really lies to be able to get a true appreciation of you know what people are struggling with what they're doing well with what alliances exist in the workplace what kinds of silos are being erected in the workplace all of this is really, really important for the workplace to understand and know and not tolerate. I mean, um, it's it's important that, you know, we start to facilitate uh, ways to interact between different departments. A lot of, uh, a lot of companies um, are just fine with having finance separate from, you know, uh, planning separate from engineering separate from everything else uh, but that that siloed structure will inherently have this us them culture bred into it and we need to to realize that um, companies should be all members in one boat rowing in the same direction not necessarily having all the infighting against each other. So it's really important that, you know, executive teams specifically um, understand that they are not, they are, their role is not to be a mini United Nations representing their department, you know, at the executive board. Their role is to be part of the executive team and to understand the priorities and how their job function, their area can support the priorities of whatever is being done at that time. And, you know, that's, that's starting to get to a much more holistic understanding of organizational health and how healthy companies can start to, to get to a better place than you know, having a lot of the status quo type structures. Absolutely. One of the things that we use in our practice is around learning teams. So how do we bring people from different parts of the organization to really deep dig it, you know, dig deeper into how they're managing work as it's done. But one of the, the things that comes from that is that interdependence. So people start to see themselves not so much as in I work in this area, this is my domain, but actually that they work as part of an organization. And it is about that moving from independence to interdependence, you know, where people feel that they've got a common alignment. Um, and I think that if you can permeate that through an organization and that that organization has the maturity to see themselves in the mirror so that they can take on board that learning as work is really being done. Actually, I think you get really good outcomes when it comes to health and safety. And I think that the other part to that is actually you get compliance. And I think you get much more meaningful compliance. And then you get that kind of that double whammy. I think you're absolutely right. And I mean, 
um, uh, another podcast that I follow is the safety of work. And um, the most recent episode was very much aligned with a lot of this organizational health stuff that I have, that I um, know more from Pat Lencioni and the table group than the paper, that the cat's paper that they were talking about, but it's the same thing. Um, meaningful work is far, is, is an incredible vehicle to be able to get not only you know standards adhered to and uh and getting work done but to allow people to develop and become use work not just as a way to get paid but as a way to de to become more contributing as a person and more able to feel as though their presence counts because they know that their their role is allowing this company to achieve the goal that they can see themselves in and that i mean once you can tap into intrinsic motivation the sky is the limit and uh it's it's wonderful to see companies when they can start to realize these things as opposed to using a dictatorial structure and using you know all of the types of ways that you know oh you Okay, so you've gotten that wrong. Well, I'm going to have to put you on disciplinary leave and all this kind of thing, as opposed to using the restorative structures and things that we know are much more, much fairer and, and, and just better for overall outcomes than, you know, some of the traditional ways have been. I was just going to say, um, I have a very simple mantra when I think about health and safety and I think about engagement and particularly from the worker end. And for me, that's there's three pillars and that's about empowerment, trust and accountability. You know, I think that we need to empower, particularly our workers, but I think that that flows all the way through to the organisation. So we need to empower people around what skills do they need to be able to do their job safely and proficiently. You know, what, uh, what's, how does our system support good practice? We need to trust that people will in fact do the right thing. But we also need an accountability piece that sits in there behind it. And I think that when we have those three pillars in place, and, the, and both workers have an understanding of it, management have an understanding of it, and it's embraced within the organization. Then I think actually we have a far better opportunity to develop and, and to become mature um, and to do all of the things that, you know, that we've been discussing here um, with regards to kind of, yeah, how do we keep evolving in this space? How do we move beyond just getting to a point of compliance to that beyond part? Um, and so very much what you're saying and, and my own thoughts, they really gel together very nicely. Can I just offer you another uh, three-pillared structure on employee yeah. engagement? So Pat Lencioni's structure on employee engagement um, st states that if you want to disengage your employees, then you do three things. Number one, call them by their job title. Don't acknowledge that they have lives just that they are just um, a skill and that's and, and nothing more than that. That's that's one way to make sure to disengage your employees. The other one is to make sure that they have no idea what their how their work contributes to the overall mission of the organization. And the third way is to ensure that they have no way to measure their own performance, like uh, make sure that they, uh, you know, are constantly in the dark as to how they're doing. So 
if if you if you want disengaged employees do those three things <laughs> of course in order to be able to have engaged employees ensure that you know people you hire people not workers that's that's the thing um that you you try to ensure that their values are aligned with your values as an organization that being that you've defined your values as an organization that you're actually living yeah. and um that they their work contributes in a meaningful way to the overall mission and um and this one's more tricky for them to find a way to be able to measure themselves because a lot of people depend on the annual performance review and we can do better than that and we can we can start to diversify the way that we measure things away from purely quantitative metrics and start to get into something more qualitative i can remember pat lencioni saying that he was at an airport and saw a young trainee at a fast food restaurant um and his man you know the manager training this trainee and was thinking to himself my goodness that is almost the most thankless job i can think of <laughs> like being a you know trainee at a at an airport fast food restaurant and he was wondering how what would he say uh, as that manager to inspire this this 17 year old to uh measure themselves uh measure himself and he thought maybe what he can do is to see if he can get all of his all of his customers to not only smile to him but to smile perhaps even on the airplane to the passenger next to them inject enough happiness into them so that they will be able to carry that onto the airplane and maybe to yet another person and you know this this kind of thing as opposed to just how many burgers have i served or how how fast can i do this and you know these kinds of metrics absolutely sort of moving away from that kind of transactional state yes. to, to something to something beyond yeah absolutely absolutely i want to change tack a little bit with you um this uh, this particular podcast although i could talk to you for hours i suspect um i certainly have a a great deal in common with you know with your sentiment but this podcast is part of a women's series um and so i'm particularly interested in in your own journey as a woman in the health and safety sector um so tell us a little bit about kind of what it has been like to be a female and often i suspect a mainly male dominated environment and i may be wrong um but tell us a little bit about that kind of positioning of a female in often a male dominated environment so it is interesting you're you're talking about this there's um i'm going to be running my my webinar uh, shortly on it, the subject is gender based violence but i am going to going to talk to uh the aspect of it not of of what you're talking about in how women um tend to not be recognized to the degree that their male counterparts are in 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 various fields um as for myself there there have been times where i believed that perhaps something was happening that uh that i didn't have much control over because it was against my gender 
and um, you know when you're when you start to realize that this might be the case it's very frustrating again because it's outside of the locus of control of things that you think you'd be able to do in order to be able to um, improve a situation and uh, so the yeah so uh, for example if if something happened um, because of the way I behaved, then that is something that I can work on and I can try to improve and correct. But if it's because of my gender or because of my eye color or because of my height or something, like these are um, types of uh, discriminatory practices that are not easily dealt with because it's not because the 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 victim doesn't have much agency in this so um the the ways that i have dealt with that well there have been a few uh, different ways there there was i can you're you're making me uh recall an incident that had taken place in a training session i was in some time ago where the scenario was a female who had proof that she was being discriminated against in that she had applied for uh, various uh, promotions and positions and was systematically denied, you know, and she had years of, of experience with this, trying to get feedback all the time after each um, attempt and always coming to the conclusion that she might have actually been the preferred candidate, but they just didn't feel comfortable having a woman in that position. And um, and so um, we were asked, what would you do? And a lot of people in the room were saying, oh, well, you know, I talk with her and um, take her to HR and have a, a, you know, try to send up a, set up a plan for her. And so I uh, was the elephant in the room um, after which they called a break and said, you know what, I think I would tell her to look for another job. I mean, if, when you have strong evidence after four years of, of taking all of those notes and knowing that it doesn't really matter what you do, you're not going to be able to advance. I mean, this is, this is the definition of learned helplessness, right? I mean, like this, you can't, that's not an environment you want to expose yourself to for very much longer. And um, so, um, but I, I was surprised that I was the only one who espoused such a radical opinion. My gosh, how could you possibly say something like that? Look, if, if, the, if you can read, if you can see the work as done clearly, then you really have to start asking yourself is do I belong here and is this actually something that I do want to be in you know yeah um, I like that very much and it very much sits alongside you know with your with your own reckoning in, in, in your own career um, that you know you've taken stock you've looked at it and said is this my passion if it's not my passion if I'm not aligned to what I'm doing it's time for me to take charge and to move forward um, I know for my own self that um, I haven't experienced huge um, issues around gender. At time, I think that I've actually used it to my own benefit. Um, I often come alongside people that are highly competent 
in what they do. And I'm looking to be able to articulate that competency. So in fact, I actually use, I suspect, some of the, the things that would be more stereotypically thought as feminine. You know, I, I take a kind of, a, quite a soft approach. I ask a lot of inquiring questions. I don't mind ever being put into a position where actually it could be a bit of a daft or a silly question, but it helps me to kind of form a bigger, a bigger picture. But I do know I wouldn't want some of the experiences that I've had to go over to my girls. So I've got two daughters who are now in, in the workplace. And I'd like to think that they will be seen as whole people. Um, I'd like to think that organizations very much mirror what you have talked about in terms of that kind of maturity, that they understand their culture, they can articulate the culture, but they can also live by their values um, that permeate and, and create that culture. If I was to ask you one final question, what advice would you give to others who enter our sector, whether they be young, whether they be young graduates, whether they be men or women, somebody that's coming into our sector for the first time, what advice would you give them? Learn. <laughs> just never stop learning. It's um, it's just so critical. I mean, you, you listen to people like Nip and Anand who really, really wants to get people to look outside of the spa safety space for the learning. Look to anthropology, look to sociology, look at other disciplines and and see how you can change the way you see the world from, from gathering the best of a, a whole bunch of different disciplines, as opposed to just sticking into your own laneway and, and not growing and learning outside of that. I couldn't agree more. I think that there's a number of really fabulous role models, whether they be in our organization, whether they be in our sector, or whether they be in a, in, a, in a completely different sector. I agree with you that it's really what we need to be doing is we need to be looking outside of our own bubble and, and reflecting, which is really what we're asking both organizations, executive management and workers to do, isn't it? We're asking people to reflect. Um, yes. Absolutely. I want to thank you for your time today. I could really just keep talking to you. It's been a really fascinating interview from my part, and I hope I have an opportunity to interview again you again in the future. So I thank you so much for your time today, um, Tanya. Uh, do you have any final final words that you'd like to sort of impart? Well, uh, once again, I thank you so much for this opportunity, and I really um, encourage everybody to start going along some of the things that we've talked about because if we can start changing some of the hiring practices and some of the ways that we conduct our businesses i know we can have a better world at the outset couldn't agree with you more thank you so much for your time today tanya thank you goodness Thank you listeners for being part of this podcast. We would love to hear your learnings or other topics you would like us to explore about learning teams. Go to www.podcastlearnings.com and give us your feedback. Become part of the community of practice with learning teams. Go to www.learningteamscommunity.com. Support the authors of the practice of learning teams. Purchase the book from Amazon.com or go to www.learningteamsbook.com for an inside look and other free book resources from the authors. 
The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise, without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.